You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. It was a very kind of backward process, right? A lot of entrepreneurs start with the solution and hope that there is a problem. I very much so started with the problem and then kind of tried to iterate through different versions of solutions until I found one that that finally fit. But I wasn't particularly passionate about sandals, wasn't particularly passionate about product or fashion in general. Um, It's pretty cool that over the course of my career, that has something that has really built up in me. Now I love it. And I love making product and I love ideating and bringing product to market and, you know, form and function and pricing and all of that kind of stuff has become something that I'm deeply passionate about. But if you would have asked me if I was interested in sandals or fashion 10 years ago, I would have, I would have said no way. That was Liz Forkin Bohannon, the founder and CEO of Seiko Designs. Seiko Designs is an ethical fashion brand that works to educate and empower women across the world. She joins me today to discuss how and why Seiko started with employing high-potential young women from Uganda and how it's grown to do the same for every woman in the Seiko network. If you've ever thought businesses were inherently bad or you find it weird to buy stuff from your friends, this episode may change your mind about all of that. If you liked this episode, you may also like episode 81 with Jasmine Burton. In that episode, we talk about how Jasmine is addressing one of the biggest challenges in Africa. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now... Onto the show. Liz, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really interested in your story, and I'm also really interested in Seiko and what it does for women and how this gets going. So thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so often when we, when we start conversations, we start in the middle of things. Like, what are you doing now or what's going on? But I think to best understand Seiko and what you're about, we got to go back to the beginnings of things. Sure. Um, so tell us about the beginning of Seiko and, and really how that all started. Yeah. So I went to journalism school and uh, throughout my time in journalism school, I became increasingly interested in issues that were facing women and girls living in extreme poverty and in conflict, in post-conflict zones. And so I moved to Uganda, uh, didn't have a job, didn't have a plan, uh, but really just showed up in an attempt to understand more what the reality was for women and girls that were growing up in extreme poverty. And kind of through that somewhat, to be honest, aimless um, journey, I ended up discovering a really, really interesting problem. Um, And that was I, I ended up meeting a group of incredible young women, academically really gifted, had tested into university, top 5% of students in the country, and they were getting ready to graduate from high school and enter into a nine-month gap year between high school and university that's intended to allow students in Uganda who test into college to find time to find a job to make money to pay for school. And with these specific young women, um, this nine-month gap 
represented a really big challenge because they were going back home to their villages. They had been at this two-year, really academically rigorous, essentially college prep boarding school, and they were now getting ready to go back to their villages where two things were likely to happen. One is that they couldn't find jobs. They're from areas of the country where there might be an 80% youth unemployment rate. So finding a job for anybody is difficult, let alone a 19-year-old girl who's at, you know, um, competing with young men in the village for the same opportunities, limited opportunities. And then the second problem was there was a real loss of social support for them. So they had gone, you know, from spending the last two years with other really like-minded driven young women. And then they go back to their villages where they face a ton of social pressure from their families to get married, to have kids. There's dowry and bride price, a real financial incentive actually for her family, for her to get married and start having kids. Um, And so the social support she has to kind of continue on this somewhat really narrow path for a woman in Uganda to continue on to university and become a leader in her community um, was really challenging. And so kind of in response to that really interesting problem, I started Seiko. I um, designed a pair of kind of funky strappy sandals and basically committed to three young women, Mary, Mercy, and Rebecca, that if they made these sandals for the next nine months, that they would go to university in the fall. Um, And then taught them how to make these sandals. Well, taught myself how to make sandals in the first place. Spent several months scouring the country and kind of trying to come up with a prototype and cobble together a, a supply chain and then taught them how to make the sandals and then came back to the U.S. and started selling these sandals out of the back of my car. Which is, you know, definitely what your parents want you doing with your master's degree in journalism. <laughs> yeah, we, we paid how much for that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's not a joke. <laughs> Why sandals? You know, it was completely random. I, I had actually tried a couple other things off the bat. I decided that I was going to start a charity, a classic kind of sponsorship-based nonprofit. I'd match up women in the U.S. with women in Uganda. And then through kind of my research and just like asking questions became shockingly to me, someone who was actually quite anti-business, if I was being honest, um, that I couldn't start another charity, that we needed to create a marketplace solution. We needed to be thinking about things like sustainability and job creation and building small and medium-sized enterprises um, contributing to the export market, all of these things that it's not rocket science. It's pretty basic economics actually, actually, but it's like, if you want to see a country in a region actually develop in a meaningful way over the course of years and decades, these are things that we have to be considering. And so I was like, I don't think I can, I can't do this. I can't start another charity. I can't do the sponsorship program thing. And so then I was like, dang it, I have to start a business. And so I started a chicken farm and that failed pretty quickly. And I was kind of like back at square one again. And I had made these sandals when I was in college that I made them literally out of flip-flop bottoms and ribbon. And uh, I had no interest in fashion. I made the sandals because I was like, I'd like a pair of flip-flops that don't flop. Uh, Very, very practical. (laughs) Um, And so when I was in Uganda, I I didn't have any better ideas. One of my friends was like, what about those like strappy, funky sandals that you made in college that people liked? And I was like, okay, I've tried a couple things that have failed. Sure, why not sandals and sandals? kind of worked. And so that's what we went with. So it's a, it was a very kind of backward process, right? A lot of entrepreneurs start with 
the solution and hope that there is a problem. I very much so started with the problem and then kind of tried to iterate through different versions of solutions until I found one that, that finally fit. But I wasn't particularly passionate about sandals, wasn't particularly passionate about product or fashion in general. Um, it's pretty cool that over the course of my career, that has something that has really um, built up in me. Now I love it. I love making product and I love ideating and bringing product to market and, you know, form and function and pricing and all of that kind of stuff has become something that I'm deeply passionate about. But if you would have asked me if I was interested in sandals or fashion 10 years ago, I would have, I would have said no way. That's fascinating because as someone who works with startups and and entrepreneurs and, and thinking about the context of Africa, I'm like, Ooh, chickens, that's going to be a problem. Like, I like, you can think about all the different ways, like, Ooh, that that's going to be in that region, super challenging. Like, you know, you can kind of go through it, but you only see that after the fact, I think when you're in it, um, you're just looking for something like, how do I, how do I do this? Basically this exchange problem where we have an abundance of resources in the United States and we have a deficiency of resources in some parts of Africa. Right. And so the job is how do we get those resources from the United States to Africa in a way that doesn't end up in the charity cycle that you mentioned and that it's sure. just always one way, you know, yep. and then never actually. And I think, absolutely. And part of the equation is also recognizing what are the abundance of resources that Africa has um, that the United States doesn't necessarily. And there is a really, really strong business case. I mean, Africa is the next frontier. It's the most promising, most exciting emerging market in the world. The workforce and the labor force and the population. I mean, Uganda has one of the top three highest youth populations in the entire world. So their population of people under the age of 25 that need jobs is astronomical. Um, And so there's some really interesting things there. But Unfortunately, a lot of Americans only see that kind of one-way street of we have resources and Africa has deficiencies. And I really believe in why I'm so passionate about creating marketplace solutions is I think what business and marketplaces do so well is that they both come to the table acknowledging like, okay, here's our deficiency. Here's where, you know, we have the market. We have the disposable income. I've got the, you know, the target demographic you've got the raw materials and the workforce and uh, the potential to kind of build up this supply chain. When we combine those two things, we can create something that's actually really mutually beneficial and sustainable, which is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the last, say, 500 years of economic development, it's been, and I won't go into some of the barbarism of it, but it's been exporting labor and resources out of Africa, you know, by planes, trains, automobiles, and boats to other places. And there hasn't been nearly the idea of like, actually, the labor and the resources are already there. Right. Um, And now we have, you know, now that we're treating people like people in a a different way. It's like, how about we actually leave it there and build up the economies there? And it makes more sense than what we've been doing in the past, which is those types of things. It is interesting that we have this uh, American specifically we kind of leapfrogged over what I would say is the most beneficial human interaction, which is mutually respectful, mutually beneficial, right? It's like on the one hand of the spectrum, we have slavery and imperialization and colonialism, right? Where it's truly treating people like less than humans and exacting resources at the cost of an entire people group. So it's like, 
basically as evil as you can get. And then we have this whole other way of dealing with Africa that's this like do good, philanthropic, charitable, you know, benevolent relationship, which I'm all about. I think that there are some some charities that are great and are doing amazing work and that in every society there's a place for charity and philanthropy. But it's fascinating to me that by and large, American culture just kind of skipped over the like how the rest of the world for the most part deals with each other, which is like, Hey, could we come to the table and figure out something that could be mutually beneficial? (laughs) Um, and so that is really what we're trying to do with Seiko is really to create mutually beneficial relationships, whether that's everything starting with trade all the way down to really the one-on-one relationships between the people that work for our company, whether that's here in the U S whether that's in East Africa saying, what does it look like if we all just come to the table and treat each other like dignified, respectable human beings? And, and it's remarkable. It's not rocket science, but it's crazy what happens when, when we start to do that. In our context, you know, we have at least over the last 50 years, um, prior to that, we, we've been empowering women to be um, equal players and equal earners in the marketplace, right? And so it's a journey that we've been on in the United States and some parts of the West for quite a while. And um, I w- there's an inside conversation we can have about that, but I would love for you to share what happens in sort of the African context or in the context you're talking about in Uganda when you specifically focus on building economic prosperity for women. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty It's pretty similar, I would say, to the journey our country has been on. I mean, on the one hand, it feels like we've been doing it for a really long time. In the grand scheme of things, it's like 40 or 50 years to change thousands of years of history is not is not a ton of time you know it's like you go back my friend just gave me this amazing book that was like this 1950s uh housewife handbook right and um it's incredible charlie i mean just like the do's and don'ts about how to be a good wife and how to serve your husband and make sure when he comes home from work, your makeup is done and the children are quiet. I mean, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. And it's like, okay, that's not that different than rural Northern Uganda at this point. And it was only, this book was written 50 years ago, you know? Um, and so, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, it all comes down to a power dynamic. It comes down to the, the fact that both here in the U S and in Africa, there is a belief that power is zero sum and that the more women are empowered and are engaged and are lifted up, whether that is in community at large or in the workplace, the less power men will have. And the reality is that's, it's a false dichotomy, right? That there's a rising tide that we can see the world over, that when women are included in the workplace, when they're included in government structures, when they're included in the private sector, everyone everyone benefits from that. Um, now, what women in East Africa, the challenges that they're facing are in a lot of ways more dramatic than what we're seeing here today in the U.S., at least more in your face, I would say. I mean, at least in the last, I mean, especially in the last, you know, six months to to a year, the reality is our society has a long way to go when it comes to fighting misogyny and when it comes to fighting systemic gender discrimination in the workplace. Um, it's just even less sneaky, I would say, in East Africa. So 
for instance, the young women that we're working with, you know, when they go back home to their villages for that nine months, what I mentioned, they're facing social pressures that are like built into the actual core function of their societies, right? So their bride price, literally their father will get paid a price for their hand in marriage, right? Um, maybe that's a few cows, maybe it's a couple goats, it's some negotiation. She normally doesn't have a say in who that person is. Um, and in some areas of the country, this is mind blowing to me, her bride price will actually diminish for every year of education that she receives, right? So it's like the very price on her head and on her body and on her personhood that that is that the community is saying we collectively agree she is worth this decreases the more educated she becomes because the sentiment is like hey what we need in a good wife is someone who's going to be submissive and have as many babies as I want her to have and be cool with me having as many other wives as I want to have and we know that that decreases for every year of education that she gets um so in some ways that's not all that different than a lot of the kind of more subversive behaviors and understandings that we have here in the U.S. It's just so much more formal (laughs) and it's like very official and it's like built in to the economy and to the family structure. But those are the types of of challenges that we're that we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds, again, barbaric to say, but if you look at it in other sort of livestock scenario, like you don't want a milking cow that's a kicker and biter, right? Um, you want a docile one that will line up and sort of give you the milk and then get back out into the pasture. Um, and if you were looking at it for that sort of lens, you're going to go with the docile sort of, you know, line up, get in, you know, do what we need you to do sort of scenario. Unfortunately, that's, you know, applied to humans in this context, right? Is we, we need this particular thing. This makes them less able to do that thing. So, the cow, the milking cow is not as valuable to me. And it's a terrible way to think about it, but again, it's formalized in that way. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's how I believe in them, but it is, you know, a way of thinking through that calculus. Sure. There's a level of, and, and it, at the end of the day, the entire belief system is built on the idea of women as property. Um, she's, she's the property first of her father. And then that property ownership rights kind of transition to her husband and there's an economic exchange that happens for that. Um, and yeah, it's all, it's all built on the premise, however, that women are not fully human, that women are, that are property to be exchanged for various purposes. Yeah. Um, I haven't done the research as of this year or last year, but there is a significant portion of the world that lives on less than $2 a day. Right. Um, And I want to bring that up because when we start talking about buying sandals and in the context of entrepreneurship in Africa um, and with the understanding that many of the people that are living under less than two dollars a day are coming from Africa and some parts of India, some parts of Southeast Asia, um, buying how much are some of your sandals? Started about 50 bucks. Started about 50 bucks. How much goes to the women? So it's built into our operating costs. We actually don't have a model where like a portion of the profit are going back. It's all based on the women are paid a monthly salary based on what they do and what their job is and all of that kind of context. So Um, what I'm trying to make the translation, you can make the translation best for me based upon the model is 
um, what that salary does comparative to sort of the baseline um, earning or per capita um, of the people from her tribe or region or from her village or region. Yeah. So the, I mean, I won't even talk about the minimum wage in Uganda legally because it's so low and it hasn't been updated since the eighties. Um, so it's basically meaningless. Uh, there was a proposed minimum wage that came out in 2017 that ended up not getting passed. Um, but the proposed increase minimum wage for the entire country, what the average woman at Seiko would earn would be at least two to three times what that proposed minimum wage would be. It's probably 20 times bigger than what the actual minimum legal minimum wage is, but we won't even, we won't even go there because it's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. And what I want to say is a little bit goes much further, like in that scenario, right? Um, because um, what we look at is, is in these regions we're talking about, a significant portion of their money goes for food um, yeah. and keeping themselves yeah, alive. Yeah. So like people can actually eat, which is not something that we in the States have to think too much about most of us. Like there are some among us. Um, who, who it is, who it is, but most of us, especially people who are listening to this podcast probably don't have to worry about, um, whether or not they'll eat in the next four days. Um, but that's in some places, not at all uncommon, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Just the general context of the cost of living and the power of the dollar is wildly different, uh, place to place. And the prevalency of yeah of extreme poverty of on living on that less than two dollar a day mark extreme food insecurity being pretty commonplace in most parts of of africa um is obviously a really really different dynamic much different dynamic so i'm curious because you mentioned earlier that you were hostile or at least resistant to business i think mm-hmm. you said hostile though right hostile to it being a business um yeah very Tell us about your journey from that hostility to where you are today. Yeah. I mean, when I was in college, um, I was this super idealistic social justice warrior, right? So it was like, I believe that the world was broken up into two different groups of people, the kind of privileged and the powerful and those who were oppressed by the privileged and the powerful, the haves and the have nots. And in that kind of worldview that, you know, is as black and white as only a idealistic 20 year old can be. Um, for the most part, I saw businesses kind of contributing to that system. I saw people that were interested in business and in the marketplace, mainly interested and focused on, Hey, I want to build up my own little kingdom. I want to build my walls higher. I want to create security for myself and my family. And it doesn't really matter to me what the cost to anybody else is. Um, And I was very firmly not okay with that. Um, So that led me to being in a place where I thought, well, that then I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the outside of that community. I'm not a business person. I do not want to participate in that. Um, And so that was kind of my, that was kind of my general sentiment all through college. So it was a real, it was a real mind shift for me when I was in Uganda. And to be honest, there was a lot of kind of eating humble pie, right? When it was like, oh my gosh, this thing that I thought was kind of inherently greedy and selfish and power hungry is actually completely agnostic. The tool of capitalism in the marketplace and business is actually totally agnostic 
what an immoral, not immoral, immoral. It's not, it's neither good or bad. It's how you do it and the decisions that you make and the spirit in which you do those things either make, makes it contribute to what I would say is a, is a pretty systemically oppressive system. Um, or it could actually now I believe be one of the, the most powerful forces to change that, um, and to create mutually beneficial relationships and to end extreme poverty and to create opportunity for people where it didn't exist before. I think it can be an incredible, great equalizing tool. And I have become an unapologetic, absolute passionate fan of capitalism, but using kind of the tool of capitalism to create the social change and kind of the social goals and values um, that I believe in so deeply. I'd like to hang out here a little bit more because um, there is that quite common sentiment, um, whether it's sort of the ghost of Marx um, that infuses many different circles, including academia, um, whether it's, you know, just bad stories that we tell about the used car salesmen or the business moguls that, that buy up everything or the, you know, there are just so many different ways that we have about understanding what business people are like and what business does, right? Um, that aren't representative that, that I just want to pull this out a little bit more. So you mentioned that you become a huge advocate. You, you sort of gave a few other reasons. Um, but really when was the moment for you where you got it, where you got that shift and you're like, wait a second, this is, um, this is what it can be and what we can do. I was living in East Africa and I kind of came to, it was kind of like, well, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, you know, I'm thinking, okay, we need to create jobs. We need to contribute to the local economy. We need to build up the small and medium enterprise sector. We need, it'd be great if we could do something for export, all of these things that was like, I could, I could have made Seiko a charity. Absolutely. Um, however, it's like, but if the core function of what I'm trying to do aligns way more with running a business, it didn't seem like it was wise or authentic to do anything other than that. And I'm not even speaking about kind of the ideological side of it. Um, so I really kind of backed myself into it. And once I was like, okay, I'm going to create jobs. I want to keep the girls together. I want them to earn a skill or learn a skill. I want them to earn the money. I want to contribute to the local economy. I'd love to do something for export. Then it was pretty hard to deny like, okay, everything that you're describing is you want to start a business. Um, I just didn't start out saying I wanted to start a business. So I kind of backed myself into that realization when I was living in Uganda. So by the time I got back to the U.S., um, I was pretty firmly in the camp that it was like, we're going to be a business. We're going to be a for-profit. We're going to do this using kind of a capitalism for good model, not a traditional kind of aid or charity model. So one thing that's a major difference between sort of the charity or the business model is that when you start a business, the business has to exist and be sustainable within the community itself, right? Um, whereas a nonprofit, which is typically um, pulling resources from one place and pushing it to another without necessarily thinking about what's going to happen in that one, like you can build the nonprofit system without it being sustainable in the way of when those nonprofits leave, that the people there know what they're doing. And it was actually something that was meant to serve that local population. Um, so you've said all that. I'm just mirroring it back. So because, you know, I'm, I'm with you 
in that um, I've become a huge fan of business as a force for good, um, especially in the areas we're talking about, because you can't build a business that works without building an economy and without building a society that works. Um, but you can build a nonprofit that just does what it does without addressing the rest. And so it's harder work, but I think it's the work that needs to be done in some of these places. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, what has been the biggest, um, I'm going to start with two different ways of looking at this question. Um, one is the biggest personal challenge that you've come up with, with running and growing Seiko. So I'll start there. I'd say my biggest personal challenge, probably as an entrepreneur in general, uh, is probably focus. It's so difficult, specifically when you're, when you are a mission driven company, um, it's really hard to say no to things. It's really hard, you know, when it's like, oh, but we could, oh, but what about this group of people? And what about this situation? And maybe we could figure out a way to make it work for this woman, even though she doesn't, it doesn't make sense, but we'll figure, you know, kind of trying, I'm, I really struggle. And, and this has been an amazing part of having a team. Um, I have a team of people around me now who, uh, have really pointed this out in me <laughs> in a helpful way that it's like, I am always making exceptions to the rule. I always want to bend the rules. I always want to go after the exception. I always, and without realizing a lot of times the cost and the weight that that has to our overall mission, to the organizational health, to the focus that we have as a company, um, so I'm really grateful for both my, my life partner and my business partner and a couple other people on our team who uh, have kind of, I think, helped me see a little bit more clearly how important just focus is and kind of this idea that it's like, if we try to help everybody, we're not going to help anybody. Um, and that was a lesson that took, you know, kind of a long time for me to learn. And so I would say just staying focused and not constantly making exceptions to the rules and being okay with saying like, this is who we are, whether that is for, to people that we're going to employ, whether that's people we're going to sell to potential customers, potential sellers, we're a direct sales company. So we work with hundreds of women across the country that actually sell the product in their community, kind of saying like, this is who we are. And if this works for you, great. If it doesn't, it's not a great fit. Um, but not trying to kind of constantly bend to make it work. Have you gotten to the point to where you can see the focus problem before it happens? Or is it still one of those things that as you're doing, you're like, oh, 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 there we go again. Uh, probably. I mean, definitely. I would say 90% of the time I see it. There's definitely still a 10% where I'm like, well, we should just do this. This won't be that hard, right? And then someone on my team will be like, we would have to create an entirely new system to accommodate that. Here's how much work and energy and resource it's going to pull from what we're doing. And then I have the clarity to go like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Probably not worth that. <laughs> Let's not do that. Yeah. But I'm definitely not, not batting at a hundred percent at this point. I don't even know if that's the correct sports analogy there. I'm not really a sports person, but I think it works. We all know what you mean. And I don't know. I don't know that any real entrepreneur gets to a hundred percent. I think we get closer to like, Oh, I could see a bad idea coming. Right. Versus like, Oh, Two weeks after the fact, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> um, I probably should not have done that, right? Um, so the trick is is learning when it's a unfocused or bad idea sooner, um, yep. not necessarily a, like not having them in the first place. Yeah, 
or making sure you're just hiring people that are smarter than you that can help keep you in line. Yeah. Um, which as an <laughs> entrepreneur sometimes means you're hiring people to be your boss. Um, because your boss without them sucks. Um, but that's a question that's neither here nor there on the business side. So looking outside from just your personal challenges, what's been the biggest challenge to growing, um, scaling or maintaining Seiko on the personal side, you said on the business side, like on the business side, business side. Um, well, gosh, I would probably say this, probably say the same thing. Um, Maybe I answered the first one more of business than it was personal. Cause I think that I would say that that's, that is my, I guess that's my biggest personal business challenge. My biggest actual business challenge, um, would probably be being a vertically integrated company. We're essentially running two completely different models. We run a vertically integrated manufacturing company and we run a sales and distribution, um, marketing company here in the US. Very few people do both. Usually you're marketing, you're essentially a marketing company, you're a design firm, and you outsource your manufacturing to somewhere else. And then your job and all the people you employ and all of your focus and all of your capital goes towards selling the product and creating demand. Or you're a manufacturing company and you put all of your resources to doing, you know, best in class manufacturing and efficiency and uh, inventory management. And we have taken on both of those beasts. Um, and we run two completely different companies that require different financing models. They require different mentalities and ways of running it. Um, they require different staff. Uh, they have different growth trajectories. And so that's a pretty big challenge. It's a challenge. There's definitely enough upside to it and enough benefit. Um, that it's a, it's a worthy challenge and something we will continue to pursue, but it's a challenge nonetheless. I love that because, um, you're right. Um, running say a logistics business and running versus running a creative marketing design business are two different things. And that's normally what you see. And both are incredibly difficult in their own respective things, doing both at the same time, extra difficult, Uh, I'm curious, what would you need to see in the world for you to know that it was time to let go of one or the other arms? Um, I don't know. I actually, I mean, it would just need to, it would need to stop working. I mean, I think we would need to, we would need to see that it was impossible for us to create an impact in East Africa through a manufacturing model or to create the products that we needed to create for the market demand in the U S on the U S side of things. I think it would be that we were seeing that our message or our product or our design wasn't resonating at all with the end consumer. Um, there would be a lot of steps between that realization and probably folding of, you know, iterating and, you know, going back to the table and whether that's a different product matrix or pricing structure or brand messaging. Yeah, that's reasonable. I ask that because a lot of times when we're thinking of an idea, whether it's on the business side, where there's a creative project or side, like we, we do all the things sometimes without, and we're like, we're just doing them without thinking like, what would it actually take for us to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's really amorphous, but those are, you know, really good things to consider on your side, on the side of like, if we can't manufacture or, you know, if you can't 
Um, I, I, I would also say, did I lose you? Yeah, you, well, you just got kind of choppy. I got choppy. Okay. Um, I'm going to make a note of that so that I can let the folks. Okay. Yeah, it's a tricky one because. Sorry, I'm going to need to hop off in about five minutes. Okay. Um, trying to think how we're going to wrap this up then. Do, do, do. Um, do you have time to talk about the future of retail? Because that was one of the things that you mentioned that you wanted to talk Okay, so we'll go back on with that. Um, sort of wrapping things up, we've talked about the conditions of Africa, what's going on there, where where Seiko is in the midst of things. But let's talk about um, something that I believe you're really passionate about, the future of retail. Um, that's a big topic that you've been doing way more thinking about than I have. So what is the future of retail? And why does this excite you? Yeah. Oh man, this has become increasingly exciting to me over the last few years because the retail landscape continues to change really dramatically. And what's exciting to me is that when I used to think about that, when we did traditional retail, we sold wholesale through a network of about 500 stores across the country. We had an e-commerce site that we sold kind of in tandem through our traditional wholesale model. All the talk about the future of retail was really scary. So it was like, if that dies... That's the train we are riding, and we're going to go down with it. Whereas um, now, the, the talk of the future of retail is super exciting to me because we have completely shifted our model. We, um, about two years ago, well, actually less than a year ago, technically, shut down our entire wholesale channel, decided to stop selling kind of through the traditional brick and mortar retail establishment and to go direct to consumer through a direct sales model. Um, so direct sales model, meaning women in their own communities will purchase sample kits, catalogs, they become spokesperson for the brand, they style their friends, they do the customer service, they do marketing, they hold events, um, they sell the product in their own communities. And the reason that we chose to do that is because brick and mortar retail, as anyone knows, is struggling. Um, the, the experience of, of retail has gone away from the department store, away from the big box, honestly, away from big media telling people this is what you need to buy and who you need to buy it from. And it's become incredibly um, micro segmented and it's become incredibly social. So I'm so much more interested in knowing what my friends are buying and what they think is cool and interesting and what they've discovered than I am what some traditional magazine or media outlet or department store is telling me that I should like and love and think is cool. Um, so e-commerce is largely taking over kind of the brick and mortar retail landscape, which is amazing. And we love e-com and we'll continue to do e-com. However, what what e-commerce doesn't do is it doesn't kind of fill this vacuum of the experiential side of retail, right? Part of shopping is getting the end product. Part of shopping, and specifically for women in America, is it is a pastime. It is a hobby. It has traditionally been a way that you connect with your friends and you go out to lunch and you go shopping and you try things on and you give each other feedback and um, and what e-com isn't necessarily doing is accounting for that very relational, social, experiential side of retail. And so what we are so excited about is we, I really believe that the direct sales model, um, is the perfect answer 
to that. It, it creates this social, engaging, kind of community-oriented way of shopping, specifically of shopping a brand like ours that has such a rich kind of story and connection to the product where there's such a benefit to having someone that can say like, hey, let me help you come up with a tie for the sandal. Let me find you the perfect bag that's going to go with that dress that you just bought for that wedding. Those are all the types of experiences that when when brick and mortar retail shuts down, we start to lose that e-com really can't offer. Let me bring that over to you so that you can try it on yourself and see if you like it or don't like it. Um, but the direct sales model really answers all of those questions, but it does it in a way that isn't relying on kind of the traditional brick and mortar retail network to do that. Um, I think it's, I think it's the future of retail. I think right now direct sales brands are kind of seen as, uh, their own kind of niche. And I think over the next 10 years, we will not even really classify as a product bought through someone in my community who's earning a commission off of that, or is it bought, you know, online from a big corporation that's keeping 100% of that margin. I think there'll be a lot more fluidity um, in how we purchase. And that's really exciting to me. What's really exciting to me about that is that the future of retail is the past of retail. Yeah, yeah. Right, is that this is how, you know, 200 years ago people shopped. This is what we did, right, before um, a bunch of middlemen basically got put in the middle and started eating all that up. But so the future is the past, and I love that. I uh, do too. Yes, it's like, you know, there's – the, and kind of one of the main complaints of uh, – of direct sales is like, I don't want to buy from my friends. You know, I want to buy, I want to go to target when I need something and I want to hang out with my friends when I need something. And you're right. That is so different. Even 50 years ago, right? It was like, no, you bought your shoes from the guy who made the shoes down the street and you bought your vacuum from the vacuum dealer. And you also knew his kids and you went to school with them and it was so much more connected. And, and we've gotten to this place where it's like, there's so much siloing happening that we feel really uncomfortable any, any time that crosses over. And the reality is, I think that's amazing. I think it's beautiful. There are obviously ways it can go wrong, right? The vacuum salesman can be skeezy and annoying and inappropriate. And when you're at the soccer game with the kid, the vacuum salesman can try to be selling you on vacuums and no one wants that to happen. Um, but it can also be an amazing way for a community to work together, to appreciate each other's gifts and resources and to support a local economy in addition to this global economy. I mean, I love the fact that when a woman buys a pair of sandals or a handbag or a dress or whatever she's buying from Seiko, she knows that that, that purchase is helping a woman in East Africa go to college. It's also helping the woman in your zip code down the street from you send her 14-year-old daughter to NASA space camp or start her own business or send her family on vacation or all of these things that it's like, why would we not want to be contributing to the local economy. I am obviously with you. I find it interesting that we're like, I don't want to buy this thing for my friends, but if your friend made art or made a book or went or was going to an open house, you're like, I want to go support my friend. Sure. Right. We've gotten yeah. so far away from the creation of things that when it's like this thing, we don't want to buy it. But when it's, when we see that this is this person's craft or art or their soul showing up in this work, we're like, Oh, I obviously want to support that. Yeah. Right. And so I'm, I'm really excited as we get back and realize that we're all creators, we're all makers, we all can contribute that we sort of break down this idea that you can't buy stuff and sell stuff to your friends. Yeah, right? I love. Yep. Yep. 
All righty. So as the guest on today's show, and I know you got to wrap, um, you get to leave our listeners with a invitation or a challenge. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Oh, well, if I can be so bold, I would invite listeners to join FACO, <laughs> to be a part of our community of what we would say our community of dreamers and doers and impact entrepreneurs. And if there is anyone that is listening to this that is like, man, I want to be an impact entrepreneur, but I don't have a product or I don't have a service or I don't think I have the right you know, skills or whatever. We've built our entire community to say like, come be a part of what we're doing and, and come be a part of this community, learn how to start, run and grow your own impact enterprise and do it in the context of other like-minded people who are kind of walking that road um, and that there is a seat at the table for you. That's fantastic. Liz, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a blast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Charlie. All right, everybody. So you heard it from Liz. Um, If you've already got your own idea or you've already got your own thing, think about how you can create impact in your local community, in the global community um, with that particular thing, because you can do good while doing well. Um, And if you don't have a idea, maybe joining the Seiko community is the way to go. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.